Marsh from Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. The bad news about solving these giant systemic problems is you can only ever make incremental difference in any of them. The good news is, hey, pick a lane. You can make an incremental difference in any of them. <laughs> if you're a voter, if you're a politician, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a thinkfluencer, there are a million problems out there where lots of people just kind of beavering away at them because they can't not makes these small differences which cumulatively snowball until you know you wake up one day and the world's most valuable energy company is the renewable energy company that's true today who would have predicted that 20 years ago yeah exxon mobiles like maybe we should stop drilling for oil and gas it's high risk we're gonna get taxed on the carbon and meanwhile you know uh, a spanish company is like we're gonna keep putting up solar panels and and uh, offshore wind you know that came about through just millions of small incremental decisions you know Hey, everybody. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. It's a especially happy Tuesday for Sagar and I because we have gotten back from the realignment conference. It was last Friday. It was incredible. A special shout out to Andy C, Alex E, Aaron B, Adam M. Really just shouting out, not going to throw any weirdos y'all's direction. So you know who you are. I really appreciate speaking to the more than 50 people who crammed our very small space, but I especially enjoyed speaking with all of you around the show, your lives, and just the things that actually convinced you to fly out for a conference. We really appreciate it. Sagar, did you have a good time, I'm assuming? Yeah, man. I loved meeting some of these people. Also, uh, David, I forget his last name, but very cool guy. No, here's what it is. It was just awesome I miss meeting people in person. Uh, it was the first in-person event that I've done since after COVID. And it was just, it really just felt like being alive again, being able to meet people face-to-face, what they like about the show, why they found it interesting. It's all just, uh, it really makes me happy. Um, and it just really gives more of a face and it, and it helps us program the show too a lot better. So it was awesome. Yeah, and a quick lesson, we saw everyone blow up Sagar's Instagram when they saw he was in Miami. In future, we will make sure we have time to put together a separate meetup from just a conference because it's awesome to see that so many people want to hang out and talk realignments. Well, uh, speaking of talking realignments, today's episode is with Christopher Mims. We talk about this in the YouTube video, but we straight up did seven hours of long form discussions with people starting that morning at 8 a.m. So we had to pick an episode that we actually really, really, really wanted to do. And that's with Chris. We were talking about supply chains, but specifically Sagar, aside from his book, Arriving Today from Factory to Front Door, where everything has changed about how and what we buy, why was this the topic of the moment? Supply chains are everything right now, Marshall. I mean, and nobody can get anything. People are going crazy. The number one in- issue in the entire country right now is why our price is up. And uh, despite what some people want to tell you, about 99% of it has to do with the fact that everything is backed up in our supply chain from the ports of LA, the truckers, I mean, China, there's every every level of analysis, something is going wrong. And that's what I wanted to understand. And Chris really helped me do that. You know, this is funny, uh, Sagar, you just threw some shade at people without naming names 
well, you don't need to name it, but what do, when you talk about despite what some people say, what are you responding to? Well, uh, I'm going to posit this. Uh, the rise of prices has nothing to do with the M2 money supply, uh, despite what some people on Twitter might want to tell you. Dramatically, all of the price you know, increase that we see, which yes, it is technically inflation, has not, almost nothing to do with our monetary policy. All of it can be rooted back to the fact that we have a series of horrific inefficiencies within our supply chains, which was designed for just-in-time delivery. And then it turns out that you know when you do that for 30 years and you have this global pandemic, a massive surge in demand all at the same time because of a very weird set of policies, yeah, stuff is going to go start to go a little bit crazy. If, if there's one good thing it was coming from this Marshall. I don't know who tweeted this, but I'm going to steal it. You know how everybody kind of learned a little bit about finance after 2008? Like everybody was just like, oh, Glass-Steagall and too big to fail and derivatives. Um, and that somehow was, it was, if anything, it was actually a better financial education um, for some of us. This will be the supply chain thing. Like Gen Z and millennials for the rest of their lives are going to be like, oh, I know a lot about the supply chain um, because of this. And so that is the possible one silver lining of all of this. Man, that is a good take. It's actually a tragedy that you cannot cite who sent that. And just for audience members who've been sending us feedback, we are well aware of the inside baseball we get into. when So when Sagar's talking about the M2 money supply and inflation, he's referring to the fact that there are a lot of people, specifically people who are let's just say 10 times more into crypto than we are, we'll see things like inflation and say, here it is, hyperinflation, money printing machine, the government spending, now buy Bitcoin, buy crypto, buy whatever. And once again, we are very pro-crypto on this podcast. Yeah, We're actually going to cover I own that more. Bitcoin. I'm pro-Bitcoin. The right. number one thing we want you to take from this episode is that every single thing that's going wrong here, to Sagar's point, the lack of truckers, the how terrible the trucking industry is, to the fact that literally there weren't enough cargo containers, shipping containers to move goods. Stacking that has nothing. Laws, Marshall. We could have the, the regulation on stacking containers. And then what's so funny is we yeah. could have had the most like crypto bro fiscal mm -hmm. policy ever the past year. All those things still would have been true. So that's the number one takeaway we want to get from this episode, which is these things are actually incredibly complicated. There is no sexy tweet you can send about this topic. And you should actually take a second back to look and put this all together. And, and I think the last thing I'll add here is that what fascinated me is, and Chris talks about this, there's a shortage of truckers right now. And that may sound pretty straightforward, but if you think about it, we just had Adrian on the podcast and something that people talked about for a long time regarding uh, the, the trucking industry was with automation, you were see, going to see millions and millions of truckers lose middle class, you don't have to have a college degree, you could live in the middle of the country, type jobs like the trucking industry. So the fact that people are quitting that industry right now, despite the fact that there's intense demand for it, is an interesting wrinkle and it suggests that we should maybe take a step back and once again, not just use sexy, straightforward narratives. And it's also another area where Companies are pursuing automation, not because they're literally trying to destroy jobs, but because actually there aren't people who will fill a variety of jobs right now. So it's a fascinating uh, interlock of different features. Yeah, I would say the number one lesson of this pandemic, the if it, the easy answer is almost never true. Oh, we have an employment shortage. It must be unemployment. Unemployment goes away. Oh, we actually still have a massive labor shortage. Turns out weird shit's happening. That's what happens when you shut the global economy down for two years. 
Um, and I would say that this episode hammers that home, and that's why I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and last bit, last, last, last bit is uh, Weird Shit Happens During a Pandemic is the best second title we could ever give a podcast episode that sums up everything mm -hmm. we've done. Well, before we get into it, let's hit our housekeeping notes. So, like we said, we had a really great realignment conference. The YouTube video from these episodes is going to go up. So, if you have not yet already, go check out our YouTube channel go hit subscribe. It's there every Tuesday and Thursday along with the audio you're listening to right now. It will be in the show notes. Also, we'll be releasing our episode slash conversation with Antonio Garcia Martinez this upcoming Tuesday. Um, and then for our next episode, we have Ross Douthit back to discuss his really personal book. We are taking this opportunity after the conference to just take stock and see what we're doing, see what we're doing with the podcast and try to format things and takes everyone's really helpful, good faith suggestions in mind. So if you have not sent us anything yet, email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com or subscribe to the Substack where you could also leave a comment this Thursday regarding how we're doing this, what we could be doing better and what we're doing really well as well. And final bits here, this is a book show so go check out our bookshop. You could buy Christopher's book, help support the show. And deeply importantly, we have not done a big review bomb in a long time. So we're not asking for Q&A, but you know, maybe if you put something in there, we'll respond in the Substack. But leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Go to Apple for the realignment and go check out everything we're doing. Sagar, take us out. As always, special thank you to the Lincoln Network. Let's get to it. Christopher Mims, welcome to The Realignment. Marshall, thank you so much for having me. Good to see you, Chris. I know that you've heard this joke a million times, but for our listeners, I have to make it. This is the best timed book of all time. You're, <laughs> you wrote a book about supply chains that came out in September. A few weeks later, everyone is talking about supply chains, this broad topic, how it all intersects well together. So let's just start really simply, and then we could get a little more complicated. What project did you go out to explore with this book? And how does that project relate to the discussion we're having in these past few weeks about supply chains? Yeah. So the best TED talk ever uh, is by investor Bill Gross. And he looked at, you know, what determines the success or failure of startups more than anything else. And the number one factor is one that no one can control. It's timing. So sometimes you have an idea and the world is like, here's the time for this idea. That's what happened with this book. I just got this nerdy interest in supply chain because I'm interested in technology and robotics and automation. And nothing is automating faster now than the supply chain. And in some really interesting and bizarre ways, which we can get into later. So I just thought, hey, I'm going to write this book length explainer of what's going on because, hey, we're all shopping online and, and it seems like now's the time to kind of introduce people to how this has all changed. And then the mid-reporting, the pandemic hit, you know, I was on the dock in Vietnam when Wuhan was being shut down. You know, little did I know that I had booked my flight out of Vietnam just in time to get out of that country before it shut down. So I was just thrust into the gale of the pandemic and, and did half my reporting, you know, behind a mask alongside, you know, truck drivers and warehouse workers who were just racing to get everybody all the crap that they ordered because they couldn't go to stores. So it ended up being a completely unexpected adventure. Um, 
So I, I can take no responsibility for the timing. You know, by the same token, I think that, you know, Amazon and everybody else ha- ha- built this infrastructure, which, and we kind of take it for granted, but, you know, no one was better prepared for the pandemic than them, right? Like they were like, hey, let's create a stay-at-home economy. And people were like, I'm kind of into that. I'll give you one statistic that really blew my mind. I just saw this morning. Before the pandemic, online grocery was maybe 2% of grocery in the US. It's much higher in other countries. And now it's 10%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that's everything that we buy that we live on. And that's a five-fold increase in like 18 months. Um, you know, and similarly, you saw increases across all of um, e-commerce. And so that's why the supply chain has just exploded. And that's why it's over capacity. And that is why, you know, now there are shortages or you just can't get certain things and you know it's for every one of those it's like whack-a-mole for every one of those that gets resolved like now we actually do have enough lumber you know there's something else that comes along that people can't get enough of like the ceo of ikea is like you know 10 percent of our items are out of stock and toy makers are like we may be really screwed because the 10 weeks a year that we make all of our money on during christmas we might not have those toys yeah, here's an interesting question, Chris, um, because one of the things that's really frustrated me, I've been into supply chains for a long time, cared a lot about resiliency um, and the U.S., and this has caused a lot of takes. Um, there's, you know, empty shelves. Joe, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a trending thing among the right. Some people are even posting uh, empty shelf photos from the U.K., um, and extrapolating that to the United States is my particular favorite example but it does bear the question, is this anybody's fault? Um, is it anybody's fault that we are here? To me, it just seems like a cascading series of events um, which are terrible and the confluence has come together. To the extent it's somebody's fault, it's you know the fault of you know consumerism and variety, different trade policies and more put in place in like the 1990s, but nothing acutely in the last decade or so. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, in the entire supply chain, and I truly have seen it from the factory to your front door in detail, there, there is no part of that where there's just gross incompetence. I mean, there are parts where there are perverse incentives. I mean, trucking is a great one. Uh, we deregulated trucking under President Carter, actually, and it did exactly what we wanted it to do, which is that it made trucking uh, way more plentiful and it made it way cheaper, but it really robbed us of a lot of the resilience that we would have had otherwise. Um, so, you know, I mean, maybe you want to trace it to like poor Jimmy or something, but, but I mean, other than parts of the system that really need updating, like America's West Coast ports, um, yeah, like no, nobody's a, a truly bad actor here. It, everyone has a, a contribution. I mean, let's go through the actors who who got us to this current situation. There's all of us. Like we all went on a buying spree since May yep. 2020. I mean, we really did. No one I, expected it was that. An, I bought like the the those e-commerce crashing pandemic sales were. Cra- I, I've never bought so many things <laughs> that I bought then. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, what happened was, uh, you know, one wonk called it uh, home insourcing. <laughs> which just meant that like people were like, okay, I'm at home. Like I need to feel comfortable. I need to educate my kids. I might need a laptop and a webcam, you know, 
I need outdoor furniture. I talked to an outdoor furniture maker. He's like, we can't keep this stuff in stock. It's like, of course, because it was during the pandemic, everyone would hang right. out with their friends outside. There is, uh, you know, to be perfectly frank, uh, the previous administration's trade policies um, really kind of screwed up global trade coming and going. Like it meant retaliatory tariffs from China, which really gummed up the works in a, in a very particular way that I don't think is well understood. But the shipping container shortage, which is acute, is partly due to those trade policies because what happened was we did some tariffs and some chest beating. China did the same. And one of the things that they put tariffs on was agricultural imports. Well, guess how shipping containers full of electronics and other consumer goods from China get back to China? They wind their way over to the Midwest, a lot of them, and they get filled with things like soybeans and they get sent back to China. So if you put uh, you know, a finger in that hose uh, of goods flowing back to China, you end up with this unexpected second order effect of there aren't enough shipping containers now to get all of our stuff from China because they're not recirculating. So there are a number of, of factors that have led us to this place, but more than anything, people should just take away that we are buying more stuff than ever. You know, our, our, our shift to spending on goods is, you know, since the start of the pandemic is up like 10%, which represents hundreds of billions of dollars. And these supply chains are designed for, at best, seasonal fluctuations in demand. They are not designed to, let's expand by 20% overnight, because that, you know, it takes three to four years to build a giant container ship as big as a skyscraper. It takes decades to expand ports. It takes many years to renegotiate contracts with unionized longshoremen so that they accept more automation and make things like the Port of LA more efficient. Um, it will take us decades to, if we ever, you know, fix what's wrong in the trucking industry so we don't have so much turnover and burnout. So every single one of these, in order to you know, expand its capacity, it's just gonna take years. And we don't have years because adoption of e-commerce and, and shifting from uh, spending on services to goods you know, got moved up by a decade. We're going to go a bunch of different places. So we're just going to basically pick at random little things you said to go deeper on. I would like you to talk more about the trucking industry and the implications of what you're just saying here, because we were discussing this before the episode started, but I first started thinking about trucking because once you had the Andrew Yang driven UBI discussion, a huge conversation talking point was there are millions of people who are leading middle-class lives by being truckers and they're supporting their families and it's this great job. And with automation, it's possible you could see self-driving trucks eliminate those jobs. And this is going to be a whole big political problem we confront in the 2020s. But you just said we're in a world where people are quitting this industry, people where people are really burned out. So there's basically two different questions here I'd love you to take in whichever order you want to go. How close, if at all, are we to a automated trucking industry? from a vision perspective? And then what exactly is going on in the industry today where three years ago, people were really lauding it as this legitimate, you're a middle-class high school graduate and you're really supporting a family that way, but things are this bad now. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, I, trucking, almost nothing gets me more worked up than trucking because <laughs> nine out of 10 takes on trucking 
no matter the political orientation of the person delivering it and no matter their conclusion are just wrong. They get something fundamentally wrong. And I, I don't blame people because I think that, um, you know, it's an industry that's undercovered, it's poorly understood. And the, the go-to sources for it, like the American Trucking Association, this isn't well known, but the American Trucking Association is a lobbying body for America's biggest trucking companies. And you might think like, oh, that sounds like a logical place to go for statistics on trucking. But those really big trucking companies, they actually represent a minority of all the trucking capacity in America because it's so fragmented. Most of trucking is like owner operators, small companies with just a few trucks. So the ATA represents the interests of like Werner and Swift and those companies. And they operate in a very particular way where they're the ones trying to grab the youngest drivers, kind of, you know, induct them into trucking by like, maybe they pay for their <clears throat> licensing and their courses that they have to take to become a trucker. But they're also paying the lowest wages and burning out truckers the fastest. I mean, it's a form of indentured servitude if somebody goes $7,000 in the debt to a large trucking company and then has to work a full year to pay it off. And during that year, they're really only making $45,000 a year and they're working you know, 80 hours a week, they're away 21 days out of every month, they never see their family, they're working 14 hour days. Um, you know, this is not a, a sustainable lifestyle. This is why the average age of truckers keeps getting older. And it's also why there are three times as many people in America with a commercial driver's license as the total number of truckers. It shows you how many people got sucked into that system, burned out and were like, bye. So they have a turnover and retention problem the industry body that represents trucking to America's media and frankly to our government, uh, I, in my opinion, does not actually represent the interests of most truckers and is not painting an accurate picture to the point that they got into America's infrastructure bill, the stipulation that, um, oh, we should lower the age for new truck drivers from 21 to 18. Probably not a great idea from a safety perspective. It also just advantages them. They're just like, great, more, you know, cannon fodder for our giant trucking company, more people we can suck in fresh out of high school. Um, the other thing that people get wrong, which of course was your original question, was this whole question of automation. I think that people have seen how slow fully autonomous driving has been to arrive in cars. And they say, well, trucking, it's a narrower problem, which is a good way usually to solve AI driven problems, right? Like you just limit the number of factors that the machine has to cope with. It's a narrower problem, but the stakes are as high or higher. Could you explain why it's a narrower? What, what, what is unique about trucking that made it seem yeah. more straightforward? Yeah, well, one, one thing is, like, let's say that you are, your FedEx or the USPS, okay? And you have trucks that you run on the same highways, on the same schedule, week after week, because you're just hauling mail or packages between two points. You know, like a common one is like between Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas, okay? So you can completely map that highway. You can make it so that the autonomy is really only operating when the truck is on the highway. Um, and it's really point to point. So it is, it's not a robo taxi that has to be able to go to any address in a city to uh, you know, be alert to kids running out in the street after a ball, you know, to discern the intentions of pedestrians or cyclists. All it has to do is get on the highway where, you know, like, yes, there can be obstacles and problems and people cutting you off, but it, there are just fewer things that can go wrong in theory. The problem is that when they do go wrong, the results are catastrophic, right? Because you have a, an 18 wheeler 
And there, as I discovered from riding along with truckers, it is very much a skilled job in order to do that job safely, right? It's very easy to jackknife one of those. You have to have an incredible amount of situational awareness to avoid potential accidents, you know, before they happen to put yourself in the right lane so that an erratic driver doesn't, you know, kill you and themselves. Um, So the AI problem looks easier because the truck has to cope with less. The safety problem though is just as tricky and, you know, it's my strong belief after going really deep with the engineers who are building these systems that the reason they are keeping drivers in the cab of those trucks is very straightforward. They are not yet prepared to be the first to have that headline, self-driving truck, you know, kills family of four. No one wants to have that. It happened to Uber. They killed a pedestrian and they basically shut that down and sold that division off, their self-driving division. Even after previously, Travis Kalanick had said it had been an existential question. Uber must have self-driving. You've got to get there first. So the AI, um, it, it's brittle, which means that you know it doesn't <clears throat> have the same kind of world model that we have. So it's not great at coping with truly new things. I mean, a classic example that an AI researcher gave me was... Um, <laughs> someone an ai and a fully self-driving car was like going down the road with a safety driver in there and on the shoulder someone in a wheelchair was like chasing a turkey or something or a pet <laughs> and, yeah. i mean it was just it was crazy but plausible and they're like how do you prepare the ai for that right like there's no amount of training that can account for every edge case um So, you know, inevitably, self-driving vehicles are going to get into accidents. They're going to kill people. There's actually a lot of literature on we demand that machines be thousands of times safer than humans. We're very unforgiving of them when they make mistakes. We don't have legislation. What we need, honestly, to get self-driving anything on the road is legislation that says this is how often you're allowed to get in an accident and or kill people. No one wants to propose that. Right. Literally what you, that is exactly what you have to have. You know, it has to be put in black and white before any, before the, even the legal liability of, of truly driverless anything um, can, can occur. And, you know, none of the companies are working on it. They're working on it like technologists. They're like, well, we're just going to work and work and work and work until we just make it safer and safer and safer and safer. But th- there's no end game. Like they, I think that they think they can make it so safe that it will almost never have an accident or will never have an accident. But th- you know, there's no evidence they're going to get there. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you laid that out because I've just long suspected. I'm like, this just seems like it's just not going to happen. Um, and and it's like you said, it's not that it won't happen with humans behind the road and highly limited use cases and all of that. But given the bar of what we expect from machines and more. It just seems like a discussion which doesn't necessarily address the problem, if we were if we were to even consider a problem. I want to get back to what you said about perverse incentives, because that, I think, is the most important part of the discussion. I've learned a lot about long-haul trucking and uh, the hours at which they're allowed to pick up goods and why there's a backlog there. And it really has made me deeply sympathetic to the actual individuals in charge who seem part of a system which is just so arcane. I mean, 
I was listening to a the CEO of Flexport on a different podcast. He's part, it's a logistics company for those who are listening. And he was talking about how there it's literally, you know, still the case where whether your goods get onto a ship or not can be up to a dude named Lars in like Norway. Um, and whether he likes your company or not. And it's all just based on pen and pad. And I was like, I cannot even believe that that is, that is still how the system works today. Can you talk to us about the perverse incentives built in that are causing some of the pain um, whenever we hit click and we don't know where something is? Yeah, it's it's so strange because some parts of the supply chain are so highly automated, like you know Amazon's most automated fulfillment centers. Um, but then other links in the chain, like ships, like long haul trucks are completely the opposite. I mean, the situation you just described where Lars decides whether your container gets on a ship is the same situation in trucking, by the way, except it's not a guy named Lars. It's a guy named Joe at a place like C.H. Robinson, who is trying to match, if you're a shipper, trying to match your load, which needs to go a thousand miles, uh, with a willing trucker. and it's up to you know that trucker who might also be named Joe or John or whatever whether they want to accept your load. So, um, you know, Uber Freight and others are, have been trying to tackle this, but at the end of the day, it is still this relationship-driven business. You know, when I hung out with these long-haul truckers, they know they have an incredibly intimate relationship with their agent at the um, the company that's functioning as a freight broker, which is C.H. Robinson, largest logistics company in the world, happens to be in America. And that freight broker knows everything about that person. You know, let's say that they're a husband and wife team. This is a real scenario. Husband and wife team with a dog. That uh, their agent knows, okay, they like to do these kind of loads. They like to go between these two points. They don't like to work these hours. You know, I can push them on this week on this load because last week I gave them a more advantageous load that was, you know, to a location they wanted to go to or had a higher rate. And it is, it's just this relationship-based business and it has resisted every attempt to automate it. You can't turn this system into just like a, you know, push to take your next job uh, system like uh, an Uber or a Lyft app because it, it there's just too many weird contingencies involved. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, it's also because these drivers are kind of getting pushed so hard that they are just trying to, you know, make big loops across the country that get them back home. You know, like no, they cannot afford to, um, it's called bobtailing. They can't afford to drive out to uh, California empty with nothing on the back of their truck to pick up a load that someone needs to move, you know, from from a warehouse that's close to the port of LA because we have too much freight coming into the West Coast right now. The system just doesn't work that way. Like it is, an, it, it is a, you know, it was deregulated around, I think, 1981. It's an extremely market-based system that is really good at squeezing efficiencies out of people during normal times. But during exceptional times, you know, it just, it, it, it can't cope nearly as well. Yeah. This is, I need to be very precise when I say this because I'm not trying to do a quick take here, but paternity debate about Pete Buttigieg aside. The substance there was, hey, like the Secretary of Transportation should be working during a supply chain crisis. 
what would a secretary of transportation, given the circumstances you're describing, actually do during, like, let's, let's just say Pete Buttigieg was actually just in the office during this three-month period. What conceivably could he have done or would he have had responsibility over from like a federal perspective? Um, that's a great question because I don't know what the DOT has done in the past five years or 10 other than create new what are called rules of service, which were designed to make trucking safer by limiting the number of hours that truckers can drive and probably have done that, but also reduce the flexibility that truckers depended on to make a living. Um, so, you know, given where those rules of service came from, again, uh, you know, partly they were pushed by these big trucking companies. I, I would hope that any um, Department of Transportation head would go on a listening tour, uh, go spend time with these smaller trucking companies and owner operators, uh, and just, you know, sort of take a bottom-up approach to like, what have we really built since we deregulated trucking? And how is it, how has it been flawed for years? I think one of the challenges, and this is so frustrating as a reporter, is sometimes the biggest challenges we face are the things that we have just come to accept. And, you know, people say like, oh, you know, why does Amazon get away with certain labor practices? And it's like, well, the answer to that is why does Walmart get away with certain labor practices? Like there are these underlying issues that you would hope that maybe lawmakers would address, but they're busy and, and there's a lot of gridlock there. And um, trucking in particular is a system where I, it doesn't strike me that we've had a lot of really intelligent regulation over the past 15 years. So the last question on trucking before we move on to the manufacturing picture is, could you describe the pre-Jimmy Carter trucking industry? Because part of those Carter deregulation policies was the fact that you saw the airline industry also get deregulated. So an example is the cost, and once again, not trying to be a neoliberal shill here, but the cost of air travel like radically declined. If you look at the cost to fly across the country pre, you know, 1977, it was it was much, much more expensive. And that reshaped our ability, you know, we're flying. Sagas in DC. I'm in New York. I flew to Miami for a conference. It was like ridiculous how cheap it was to get here. If we were to say, hey, like let's go back to where we lived in before, there's this very clear how our lives would be different. We would fly less, probably take the trains more, buses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would a more regulate what would what would the cost? What would the trade-off be if we had a more regulated trucking industry? Yeah, so I mean, I'm glad you put it that way because you know there there are parts of economies that are that are squishy and people get trapped in these dead end debates about like, oh, are we accumulating too much debt versus the people who are like, debt doesn't matter because it's all denominated in dollars that we can print more of. Um, so avoiding those kinds of debates, like when you're dealing in the real physical economy, you're absolutely right. Everything has trade offs, right? So, so um, if we uh, increase if if we were to raise the sort of regulatory floor uh, in a way that made truck drivers' lives better, absolutely truck transportation would cost more, no question. 
Um, and so, you know, kind of as a society, we've decided we'd rather have really cheap trucking, you know, um, you know, but by the same token, uh, you know, uh, the river that flows through Pittsburgh used to regularly catch on fire before Nixon of all presidents created the EPA. So, you know, I like markets, lots of people like markets, no matter how much you like markets, there are externalities that I think most people would say, this is unacceptable. And so we have to decide, you know, what are the trade-offs that we want to make? You know, I don't know that um, we want to return to the pre-1981 world uh, because there, the way it worked was like, you know, certain trucking companies had just total dominion over certain areas um, and it was really controlled. Um, But, you know, if we can create these laws around hours of service and limit the number of hours that truck drivers drive because we're concerned about safety, we can probably do some other creative uh, regulating that would be designed to create rules that everyone has to abide so that when there is the natural market tendency to kind of race to the bottom, uh, and, and maximize profit and maximize efficiency, there's a floor. Um, and I think that the, the, the kind of, even if you are the most, uh, kind of pro markets person in the, in the universe, there is a, a strong argument to be made that the current system is not sustainable because of the level of burnout that you have. Right. So as, as an empathetic human being, you, you hopefully you want the lives of truckers to be better. As a, as a pure steely-eyed market economist, you also just don't want your trucking industry to collapse because you can't keep people in these jobs. No, I think that's really well said. That's that's one of the things I've focused on repeatedly, which is I'm like, look, you know, whether you care or not, it clearly came back uh, in order to, <laughs> to bite us whenever it came to this. Let's talk about manufacturing since you went all the way to the source of where everything is happening. I mean, you know, it's not a secret kind of what I've advocated in terms of building resiliency, trying to make more things here in the United States. But you went to the source of where a lot of consumer goods are actually manufactured and more. Just tell us about what you learned about the cost, what it looks like actually upfront in terms of when we click where it's coming from. So, you know, we, I think we have this idea that everything's made in China, but the truth is that, you know, China has done such an amazing job of economic development that wages there are high enough that, nope, actually most of that stuff is now made in Southeast Asia, increasingly in South Asia, right? Like there, yeah, there's a billion people in China, but there's several billion more who would like to climb that economic ladder right behind Mm -hmm. them. So that's why I went to Vietnam, tons and tons of manufacturing, specialized manufacturing, your AirPods are made in Vietnam. Yeah, almost every Samsung phone is made in Vietnam that comes to the West. So, you know, what it looks like in a country like that is you have a country that, uh, you know, it's like China 20, 30 years ago. In the previous 20 years, you know, Vietnam went from, I think, like four in five people living below the poverty line to now like one in five. So it's just this explosive economic development. It's super dynamic. Um, it's very crowded. Um, it does feel polluted, but not like, not like grossly, not like Beijing where like you want to put on a dust mass because of all the coal fired power plants, you know, it's just a million people buzzing around on their scooters going to work. 
Um, so, you know, I didn't, it's kind of like, I need to write another book about the manufacturing side. I didn't go into the manufacturing side of things, but you know, it, as far as I understand it, it all looks like those videos we've seen of the inside of, you know, Foxconn factories where it's just a, a million people just piecing things together by hand because it's still really hard to, to automate that kind of specialized manufacturing. Right. Um, and, you know, then it, then it's all packaged up and goes into a shipping container and goes on a barge down to, um, you know, an ocean facing port before it's shipped off to the United States. Um, you know, but that kind of economic miracle uh, is happening all over Southeast Asia, right? It's happening in Thailand. It's happening in Malaysia. Increasingly, it's happening in India. Depending on the industry, it's happening in Bangladesh. So, um, you know, China was the world's workshop and now the rest of Asia is and China has moved up that value chain and they are making the more specialized stuff. Like they will make the super specialized thread that gets woven into the athleisure, which is sewn elsewhere in Asia. You know, they are, you know, making some of the electronics that then get pieced together into gadgets in Asia, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'd, I'd like you to unpack what Sagar said around supply chain resiliency, because as I'm thinking of what you're saying, if we're looking at, once again, like you said, that specific thread that you need to create various types of athleisure, I don't think it quite makes sense to structure our supply chain so I can get Lululemon no matter like what time of the year. So like, so like <laughs> when we say like, so like when we just say resiliency, like what, what, what are we at? Like, what do you think we actually should be thinking about? Because like, once again, this is, as you chart really well, a combination of fallout from a trade war added to a global pandemic added to huge changes in consumer behavior that probably shifted the world forward five years. This really isn't normal to use that cliche. So if we're thinking about moving forward, it's hard for me to go through all these areas where we're experiencing shortages and conclude, hey, like we really need to be able to build X, 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 and Y, and Z here. What parts should we really be focusing, do you think, on our internal capacities, stuff like that? Yeah. So there's two sides to that. Number one, I just have to like be a globalist shell for one moment in this way, which is not, not a fan of what it does to America's middle class, but I am a fan of the way that interdependency uh, makes, uh, you know, war between great powers totally illogical because if, <laughs> if the supply chain for microchips is many, many countries long, and your China, like invading Taiwan, doesn't get you anything. Like it gets you control of like some chip fabs, but like that's just one node in that whole thing. You know, I'm, I mean, by the same token, uh, it also prevents wars over resources like oil and stuff. Um, on the flip side, you know, we have strategic reserves of petroleum. And now, if you listen to Intel and various lobbying bodies, we should have the equivalent for microchips. Can I interrupt real quick? The way you yeah. said various lobbying bodies, considering what you just said around the trucking industry, where you, that <laughs> felt slightly like you were giving a bit of shade. Can you expand on that? <laughs> mm. I mean, Intel wants like, I don't know, 90 billion in subsidies to build um, chip fabs in the US. And like, the problem is, as we've seen through, you know, 
trade wars with China, for example, who's invested incredibly heavily in their own domestic chip fabrication capacity. None of that matters a whit if you can't get one machine from the second largest uh, Dutch company in the world, ASML, which makes the extremely specialized, uh, I'm just going to call it a laser thingy to gloss over what it does, which etches these tiny, tiny features and chips. So like when, when, when Intel and other lobbying bodies say like, let's build more chip fabs in the US, it'll make us more resilient and prevent future chip shortages. My response is like, maybe, but you know, their own research has identified 50 different uh, points in the global supply chain for chips where one geographic region controls more than 65% of the market. So to translate that, it sounds to me like there are about 50 different single points of failure where if a country shuts down, if there's a new pandemic, if there's a, God forbid, a tsunami or a volcano or a war, like that's a single point of failure that could shut down most of global chip production. So I'm not sure unless we are going to relocalize that entire supply chain, which doesn't really seem to be on the table. I'm not really sure that you can create a kind of strategic reserve of microchips. You can create more capacity, right? I mean, and TSMC in Taiwan is doing that. And they're also building plants in Arizona and Japan. So, you know, the market is kind of doing its work and, you know, company logisticians are kind of realizing like, we can't have a single source for this. Nike's doing the same thing, right? It doesn't matter if it's chips. You know, uh, somebody told me on background, like, hey, you know, name a giant uh, global apparel manufacturer. They have set up carbon copies of their factories in China, in Vietnam and places like that even before the pandemic, because they were worried about a trade war or God forbid, a shooting war in the South China Sea. I had interrupted him. So I, I wanted, if you, if you had something else to say before there. Sorry. sorry. I mean, I mean well, the, okay, but here's my final thought about resilience, okay? We forget that America already makes a ton of stuff and that is good for us, right? Like we're, we're not, I mean, it's what is happening to California now in the Central Valley is horrifying in terms of our availability of like almonds and strawberries and stuff, but like, we're not going to starve. Like we're an agricultural powerhouse, you know, like a lot of our economic growth over the past few years has been driven by, you know, natural gas and fracking and all that. Like we have all these hydrocarbons. I really wish we would just move it all to renewables, but that's going to take time. Um, So there is something to be said for having these domestic supply chains for all kinds of things, but you just have to recognize that it will make things a little bit more expensive. It will reduce the amount of variety that we're accustomed to. But, you know, when I go on Amazon and search for like, okay, this microphone I'm talking into, there are like two dozen different brands. Do I need that? Or do I just need like a few that are actually good? And maybe they were made a little closer to home, you know, if not in the US, they're made in Mexico or something. So we can relocalize those supply chains. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see some of that inevitably because, you know, these companies are, are experiencing so much pain, auto manufacturers especially, that they're like, wow, we really need to secure uh, more supply of the older generation chips that we need to go make Ford F-150s or whatever. Yeah, I recently heard a story of Detroit coming up with future amenities and cars. So they'll sell you the car, 
with like empty spaces inside. And they're like, when we get the chips, we'll slot it in there and you're good to go. I mean, what a disaster in terms yeah. of new car manufacturing and trying to charge people for that. So it's interesting what you said, recognizing the complexity and also recognizing possibly, I think, the need to localize some things, the things that are most critical. What do you think the most, let's just say, what are the most obvious things that we could do beyond improving um, you know, the working conditions for truckers and possibly introducing some more intervention there? What are the most obvious things that we could do right now, if we wanted to, to both lessen things for the consumer and for the people who are actually involved? Well, now you're getting to a level of solutions where you know, smart people can disagree because these are like cabinet level <laughs> decisions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people like run whole presidential campaigns uh, based on the outcomes of these debates. Like if, if you are just like a strict Chicago school economist, you're just like, stop trying to mess with global supply chains, stop imposing trade barriers, like let money and goods flow where they will and everybody will have the best outcomes and the best prices. The problem with that, as even those folks will admit, is that then you create these globe-spanning supply chains that are vulnerable. I mean, what we're seeing a return to on a policy level is this very boringly described old idea called industrial policy, which is like, okay, sure. Hey, let's give Intel a bunch of money so they can build fabs here. So we mm-hmm. have a domestic of that. I mean, tons of countries do this, right? Like China does this to an extreme and, you know, arguably in some ways a very wasteful degree where they're just like, we're going to prop up every industry under the sun, solar panels, concrete, whatever. We're going to create these giant make work projects. I don't think anybody's proposing that for the U.S., but, you know, strategically, we could, uh, you know, enact some industrial policy and say, like, these are the industries that are the most critical and we are going to give them federal subsidies to build capacity in the US. I mean, let's not forget that states already do this, arguably to their detriment. States really compete with each other and kind of throw a lot of taxpayer money at attracting certain corporate headquarters, certain types of manufacturing, and sometimes it's a disaster and states can't afford that because of course states have to balance their budget. The federal government is maybe better able, better positioned to do that. So. Should we do some more industrial policy? It's certainly an idea that seems like its time has come again. So to finish us up, you had a tweet recently that I couldn't quite find, but it's it spoke to someone picking up the baton from you. You were tweeting about how there is a book to be written along the lines of what is actually driving the underlying consumerism um, beneath all these products, my urge to buy half of J. Crew when it's on sale, like the broader like existential bit that was going on there. Can you, as you said in the tweet, like you're you're not a tech reporter. So, I mean, you you are a tech reporter, so you're not exactly the person to write that book. But I would just love to close with your like the frame, the frame that you're thinking of that people should be thinking about moving forward from all this. Yeah. So there is. I mean, I'm borrowing from this whole idea of the time well spent movement which is like Tristan Harris and that whole foundation where they're like, Hey, tech companies have created these very addictive apps with these slot machine mechanics that keep us clicking and clicking and scrolling and scrolling because they want to monetize our time and our attention. And that doesn't seem to be good for us psychologically 
or good for our democracy, maybe in parallel, we got to recognize that the level of convenience we've achieved now uh, is leading to similar dynamics in terms of our consumption patterns. Like if I have one click access to goods and I don't have to go to the store, I've, you know, we've eliminated so much of the friction to buying anything that that becomes a ready solution to whatever uh, problem we're having at that time, whether it's real or, you know, imagined. Um, that said, that's for me kind of an incomplete thought because it's very hard to swim against the tide of human nature, which is like more convenience. Yes, please. You know, mm -hmm. and I can already hear people shouting in the comments, like, you know, why do you want to make it harder for me to, you know, order a formula for my, uh, baby. Online? It's a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, I don't know what the sort of larger solutions are there. I do think in the long run, as we kind of sh hopefully shift our global economy to have less of an environmental impact, we can slowly start to create a constituency of politicians, leaders, and voters who are like, guess what? It's not the fossil fuel industry paying my paycheck anymore. It's like the sustainability industry or the low carbon industry or whatever. And that's where my loyalty is. And that's what I'm going to kind of regulate in favor of. But I think that's got to be a long-term project because we don't live in, you know, communist China. Like, no, we don't have any leaders, who, nor do we want leaders who can just wave a magic wand and be like, shut down all the coal plants. So we've got to get there collectively in a way that people feel incentivized to, you know, make the slow commerce choice or, you know, uh, figure out a lower carbon way to do X, Y, or Z. Real quick follow-up because uh, it's important. It speaks to a the theme of the show. We said the word solutions a lot during this episode, but it's, it's hard to listen to what you're saying and conclude there is such thing as a solution. Um, we're just describing very complicated systems. So can you just close with a quick thought on how people should conceive of complicated problems or ecosystems and just the idea of like someone having a bill that just solves, because I'm, I'm just, I'm just always trying to, my takeaway is that there is no quote unquote solution to everything you're describing here. It was just a bunch of complicated issue sets. Yeah. And, and I think here in some ways, this is a psychological question. Like as human beings, we have a much greater capacity to take in information and apprehend problems than we have a capacity to, to will ourselves to do anything about any of them in particular. And partly that's a paralysis that comes from just feeling like there are too many of them. I mean, I think that the bad news about solving these giant systemic problems is you can only ever make incremental difference in any of them. The good news is, hey, pick a lane. You can make an incremental difference in any of them. <laughs> If you're a voter, if you're a politician, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a thinkfluencer, um, there are a million problems out there where lots of people just kind of beavering away at them because they can't not makes these small differences, which cumulatively snowball until, you know, you wake up one day and the world's most valuable energy company is the renewable energy company. That's true today. Who would have predicted that 20 years ago? Yeah, Exxon Mobil's like, maybe we should stop drilling for oil and gas, it's high risk, we're gonna get taxed on the carbon. And meanwhile, you know, 
uh, a Spanish company is like, we're going to keep putting up solar panels and, and uh, offshore wind, you know, that came about through just millions of small incremental decisions. You know, sometimes an Elon Musk comes along and is like, I'm going to accelerate adoption of EVs by 20 years. Uh, but that's rare. So I think the key thing is, you know, we all kind of have a role to play in that, like, here's my particular obsession. And also, you know, for entrepreneurs, I think there are just endless opportunities to solve these apparently small problems that, you know, cumulatively make a big difference. Yeah. And one of the takeaways I'm here is that I should get into the trucking business, Chris. So <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I, I know a venture capitalist who literally called me up and was like, I read your book. There are a ton of opportunities here. Uh, can you help me out? I was like, no, I'm a journalist. I can't help you out, but <laughs> good luck. I think there's a lot of really good problems here to solve. Chris, quit your job, take equity in that company. And in, in five years from now, we'll interview you as the next trucking billionaire. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Great book. Yeah. Thanks. Such a great discussion. Appreciate talking to both of you. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.